Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 in a few minutes, but uh, before we turn there together, I want to take a second and just sort of introduce our Easter theme. We're, uh, we're going to spend the next four weeks, including Easter Sunday, uh, looking at this idea of a place at the table. So as we were preparing for the Easter season and knowing we wanted to press pause on our Hebrews study, uh, we'll come back to Hebrews after Easter, so we'll pick that right back up after Easter is done. But wanting to take some time and really focus on Easter, we were, we were thinking again and again about, about the dinner that Jesus has with his, I'm just going to kick that out of the way. There we go. We're thinking about the dinner that Jesus has with um, his disciples, you know, this last supper. And just thinking about what sort of a motley crew that was. He's got all these different people from all these different places, and they bring all these different things to the table, and yet there he is, dining with them, serving them. He looks at them and says, I'm giving my body and my blood in order to establish a new covenant between you and my Father, knowing full well that he was blessing these guys. He's eating with them. He's sharing this community with them, and they were going to turn right around and, and, and deny him, some of them. Some of them were going to pretend they didn't know him, right? That they were going to be scattered. He says to them in John, you know, the, they're going to strike the shepherd, and you're going to be scattered like sheep. And yet he loves them still. He invites this table. We start thinking about all that it means when Jesus invites us to the table, what it means to have a place at the table. So with that in mind, over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the ways in which the table of God reminds us of the importance of community, the way it reminds us of the importance of celebration, the way the table is a place of remembrance, and it's also a place of provision. Those are the four, the four sort of ways we're going to be reflecting. Those aren't uh, the only things that the Bible teaches us about the value of table, but there are four we're going to focus on in the next couple of weeks. And you'll also note, down here in the front this week, we've got our, uh, our Last Supper table, or our place at the table table. I know that, that's redundant, but um, Pastor Joel and some of his friends built this table for us, and we've had a week of sort of preview dinners. So over the last week, um, we're taking this table and we're setting it in the fireside room, and there are spaces where um, families and friends have had the opportunity to gather around, to share a meal, to share stories of who it is that God has brought to the table when he invited them. And then there are these nails here on the table. After the service today, you can come and take a look at this. These nails are on the table, and then what's happened is at the conclusion of the dinners, people are invited to the carve into the table words, a couple of words, a phrase, maybe an image that's representative of who God brought to the table when he brought them there. So I'm hoping that all of you are signed up to have a dinner around the table, but I did hear this morning that we opened up the signups and it filled up immediately, and so there's not any more like whole table reservations available. There are some open table nights, like nights where it's a a collection of different people who just are looking for two or three seats. But what we're going to do, because not everybody got the opportunity to get in, I, I wasn't sure how excited people would get. We've got way more interest than we've slotted time. We'll extend our table dinners uh, into April. So even after Easter, we're going to open up some more slots. That'll happen here in the next couple of days. So go back online or call the church office. If you want to host a dinner, um, you'll still be able to sign up for that. If you were told this last week that there was no more room, there's always room at the table. That's the whole point, this whole thing. There's always room at the table, right? So um, we'll open this back up, but do have a chance to come and see. And if for some reason you're not going to have the opportunity to join us for one of our dinners, um, then, then come and take the opportunity over the next four weeks to carve your words into the table, even on Sunday. We want, we want to have a table that is representative of everybody that God has brought to this community. So, so take a chance to, to sort of look at that. But I'm excited about this series in the coming weeks. And this morning in particular, we're looking at the idea of table with regard to community table with regard to community. And and there are lots of stories that do this, uh, but one of my favorites is the text we have this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 9 and read through 13. And in honor of God's word, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to stand to your feet as we read this together uh, in preparation for our study. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 9. It says this, 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we pray that you would speak to us in this place. That you would join the reading of your word and the study of your word with the movement of your spirit. That your spirit would compel us. That we would be encouraged. That we would be challenged. That we would be convicted. That we would be blessed. God, we pray that your spirit would be a, a catalyst to us in this time, that we wouldn't just look at your word like a mirror and immediately forget what we see there, but that we would make changes, God, empowered by your spirit, that we would be in alignment with what we see in the text today, God, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And you can have a seat. So I, uh, I'm a guy who, who likes pictures. In fact, of all, I've, I've pretty much given up on all forms of social media except Instagram. I'm not on Facebook anymore. I'm not planning to do any of that stuff. I, I am still on Instagram, but I'm mostly on Instagram because I like pictures, right? And there's, uh, with Instagram, I basically am follow, I'm mostly following like food bloggers because I like looking at pictures of hamburgers, right? So they post a picture of a hamburger and I go, I got to get to wherever that hamburger is. Um, I'm still following on Instagram. I'm following photographers because I like taking pictures and I always, I look at pictures that other people take and I think, well, any Anybody could take a good picture if they were in that beautiful place in Turkey or whatever. Like if I went there, I could take a good picture too. But I see these great pictures and I think, man, I'd like to go to that spot, you know? Or so I follow, I follow photographers, I follow food bloggers on Instagram, and I also follow artists because I love seeing new works of art, paintings, sculpture, you name, like any kind of art. Because I look at that stuff, I see those images, and I think I want to do that. I want to be creative. I want to stretch out in all the creative potential that God's created in me. So I love looking at those images because when I look at an image, it it stirs in me a desire to be a part of whatever I'm seeing there. You know, like I see a picture of a good hamburger and I think it would be worth it to, to get on the freeway and, you know, drive the three hours into LA that it would take to have that cheeseburger, right? There are pictures and snapshots in the scriptures too that make me really hungry, right? There are pictures I see in God's word that make me hungry, desirous to have what I see represented in the image. And one of those images that always makes me hungry, we find in Acts chapter two, when, when, uh, when Luke is describing the character and the nature of the early church, right? After Jesus had given the great commission, after he had told them that the spirit of God would come upon them and they'd be empowered to be his ambassadors, Right Then he ascends, and, and the Spirit comes in power, and they have this really beautiful community that's described in Acts chapter 2, and I want you just to picture this image. I want you to see it in your mind's eye, what is described in Acts 2.42. This is an image that makes me hungry. Acts 2.42 says this of the early church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is an awesome picture, right? A picture of a community that's united both in their internal awe of God and in their external declaration of his glory. A group of people who are united both in in big room worship in the synagogue, but also united in little room worship around tables, breaking bread together with generous and glad hearts, it says. This picture makes me hungry. People who were so aware and so in tune of the community around them that when anybody had a need, they knew it, and not only did they know the needs of the people around them, but they were willing to give up all their stuff in order to give to those who were in need. That kind of attunement, that kind of fellowship, that kind of community, I ache for it. And there are places in my life where that sort of community breaks in, but a lot of times I read a picture like Acts 2, 42 through 47, and it just makes me achy because I want it, right? In all the moments where I don't have that kind of community, I'm hungry for that kind of community. And so I look at what's described there of the early church, and I think, well, where did they... Where did they get this idea and how did they sort of land on this way of doing things? And then all of a sudden it becomes clear that from the beginning of the scriptures, really from the beginning of God's interaction with mankind, he's always met with people, his creation, in a unique way over a meal table, right? Over a meal. Shared meals are from the very beginning. I mean, think about the Garden of Eden. The very opportunity that God gives to Adam and Eve in which to glorify him centers around eating the fruit he's provided and not the fruit that he's forbidden. That very first opportunity to worship God, which they screw up, is centered in a meal. You can move on from there and you see God meeting with Abram and Sarai to announce in Genesis that the child they'd been waiting for 25 years was finally going to be born to them even though they were 100 years old. We see God uh, providing food for those in the midst of famine through the ministry of Joseph. We see God calling the people in Exodus to sit around a Passover table in celebration of the fact that they were spared from the angel of death when they put the blood on the doorposts. Again and again and again, we see God calling people to a unique kind of reflection and community over a meal. Literally, from the beginning of human history, God has sort of scheduled working lunches. That's kind of what we see all throughout the Bible. That he's constantly working through food. Daniel looks at his guard and says, trust me, only feed us water and vegetables and God will empower us to be the kind of students that you want, right? Elijah is fed by the birds. Again and again and again, we see God meeting people through food. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the fact that you and I need food, that we have any needs at all, that's, that's by God's design, right? He could have created us to never get hungry, He could have created us not to need shelter. He could have created us to be completely and totally self-sustained without any needs whatsoever. The fact that we get hungry, the fact that we look at a picture of a cheeseburger and want it is because God created us that way. Because he wanted us to recognize that we are people who have a need. In our basic needs, there is a type and a picture of our much greater need of the sustenance that only God can give. Every time we come to a table, every time you feel the need in the midst of a rainstorm to put on a jacket, every time you need something that was built into you by God to point you at your much greater need. So he meets people around a meal table to remind them. He meets people over food to remind them this simple need you have for bread and water, this simple need you have is a type of a much greater need that you can only be satisfied through in me. 
He meets people at the table. So it's no wonder, throughout, throughout the course of history, we see God doing this. It's no wonder that in the ministry of Jesus, that he also has multiple places where he's joined with people around a table, where he's reclining with people at a table. And there are lots of stories we could have latched onto this morning, but this one's my favorite. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, we hear a story of Jesus reclining at a table with a bunch of knuckleheads, right? Outcasts and sinners, people who were despised by their community. And it's just such a vivid picture. Such an interesting image. Let's read this together. Matthew chapter 9. Look at what it says. Uh, as Matthew here, writing this gospel, is describing his own experience. Matthew 9, 9 says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now that, that's kind of astounding just in and of itself. The fact that here's a guy doing his job, and it's a job that he was hated for, right? Tax collectors were despised in this culture. Tax collectors were considered to be swindlers. They were considered to be greedy. They were people who were skimming a lot of money off the top for themselves. They were also considered to be treasonous because they were collecting taxes for the Roman oppressors, right? They were outcast from synagogue worship. They weren't allowed to participate in regular worship. The, the, the tax collector was considered like a dog, right? And I was, I, I've never actually known a tax collector until just this year. Uh, my... Uh, my wife and I are currently being audited for our 2015 taxes, and, uh, and I never, like, I, you read about tax collectors, and you go, I don't know why people didn't like them. Now I know. Now I know why people don't like tax collectors. <laughs> I had no experience of this, but currently, we're sort of in a wrestling match with the tax collector, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I'd want to have dinner with her. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, I mean that in the nicest way, and I hope that my tax collector's not sitting in the room. Uh, but... Tax collectors were despised. And yet Jesus goes to this man and says, I want you to follow me. And according to his own account, he says, Jesus said, follow me. I got up and I went. That's incredible. Mark, in his gospel, actually gives us even a little more insight. And I don't want you to miss it. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 says this, describing the same story. Mark 2, 13 says, Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them, right? So get the picture. There's huge crowds of people who've heard about Jesus. They've heard about what he's done. Huge crowds of people that are coming to see them. He says he was out by the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Verse 14 of Mark 2. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. That's Matthew. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, most of this is the same as the account in Matthew. What's different is this. In Mark's gospel, he says there's this whole crowd of people who are by their own choice chasing after Jesus. And Jesus pushes his way through the crowd of people coming to him. And he spots the one guy who isn't coming. He spots the guy who seems contented to sit at his tax booth in isolation and in despisement and in separation, the guy who didn't feel like part of a crowd, who didn't feel any impetus to come and follow Jesus with the rest of the crowd because he was excluded from the crowd. Jesus spots Matthew the tax collector sitting while everybody else is coming to him and he pushes through his admirers and he speaks to the tax collector and says, I want you to follow me. First thing I want you to see in this really cool story is that it begins with the invitation of God. The first thing we see is the invitation of God, that God reaches down into the heart of an outcast, a broken sinner, a guy who was despised, and says, I, I want you to follow me. I want you to be with me. I want us to have this sense of community. Luke chapter 5 will tell us in his account, Luke will say that when Matthew stood up to follow, he left everything. That's also an important detail. That Matthew essentially walks away from his tax booth. He walks away from his livelihood and his business to follow Jesus. So back to Matthew chapter 9. 
I want you to see there's this first invitation. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. He rose and followed him. Verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Okay, now we've just gone to a whole other level, right? It's one thing for Jesus to look at one tax collector and say, I want you to follow me. It's another thing entirely in the very next verse to go, now Jesus is reclining at a table, and it's filled with tax collectors and sinners, He's completely surrounded by the outcast and by the broken, by the, by the, uh, by the despised and the looked down upon. Now he's sitting in the meal. And you, and you might look at that and go, well, whose house is this and how did this party come to be? Well, Luke chapter 5 actually gives us some insight into that as well. In Luke chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, it says, leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed him. And Levi, that's Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So we get a little bit of insight from Luke in this party we hear about in Matthew 9. How did this party come to be? Where is it happening? The party we see described in Matthew chapter 9 is actually happening in the house of Matthew the tax collector. And all of those other people that are at the party are the invitees of Matthew. So watch the way this goes. What we see in this text are two invitations. We see first and foremost the invitation of God who reaches past everybody's biases and everybody's despisement and he invites Matthew to follow him. But here's what happens next, and this is amazing, that once Matthew sort of, sort of has his eyes open to the idea that Jesus would want fellowship with him, once his eyes are open to the idea that he's not an outcast to Jesus, that he's not despised, that Jesus actually wants to have a relationship with him, what that does is Matthew goes, wait a second, if Jesus is willing to have me, I know all kinds of other knuckleheads and scoundrels. I know all kinds of other swindlers and cheats and treasoners. Treasoners? That's not a word. <laughs> Treasonous people. I know all these other, what's traitors? Thank you very much. Who did it? Who said it? No, you're not going to own it. It's fine. All right, good. Traitors. That's the word. Matthew says, if I'm welcome at the table, then I know all kinds of other people who would be welcome at the table too. It's not enough for me to simply follow Jesus if there has been an invitation extended to me, even though I'm a mess, and even though I'm hated, and even though I've been greedy, and even though I've been a swindler, and even though I've been so broken, if Jesus wants me, I know all these other people who would also be welcome with Jesus. He goes, I gotta throw a party. We're going to do it at my house. We're going to build a table, right? We're going to bring all the other tax collectors and all the other sinners and all the other swindlers to the table. There's two invitations. Because when you and I recognize how unworthy we are, how undeserving we are of being at the table, we also then, in understanding we have an invitation to the table, recognize that if we're allowed to be there, anybody's allowed to be there. Everybody's allowed to be there. One of the things I've said again and again and again in our community here is that one of the things that unites us, there's not, there's not a lot that unites us, but one of the things that every human being, no matter who you are, or where you come from, one of the things that everyone has in common is our brokenness. We're all messy. We've all blown it. We all say stupid stuff. We all do things we could regret. It's one of the things we have that unites us. I had the opportunity to go to a dinner uh, in 1996. This is an old story. I got the opportunity to go to a dinner in 96 at Planet Hollywood in Phoenix. 
And my wife and I showed up uh, early for this dinner, and we're, we, I told the hostess, I said, hey, we're meeting some people here, but I don't see them yet, and so we're just going to kind of wait. You know, you sort of wait for your party to arrive. And we waited until the, the scheduled dinner time, and then it went five minutes past, and it went ten minutes past, and finally the hostess comes back, and she goes, are you sure that the people you're having dinner with aren't here already? And I said, well, I walked around and I didn't see them, so we're just gonna wait, you know? And she goes, well, why don't you tell me uh, who you're meeting and then, I, then I, can, I can tell you if they're here. And I said, well, and I didn't wanna tell her. It was kind of awkward. The dinner we were going to was a, was a pre-event dinner for this big, we were doing this big youth rally in Phoenix on Halloween in 1996. And so the people I was meeting for dinner, uh, here's the list of people that were at the dinner with my wife and I. Uh, the first guy that, the guy that scheduled the dinner was a guy named Alice Cooper. He's a, <laughs> He's a rock star from the 70s, kind of shock rock. You know Alice Cooper, right? That, he was going to be at this dinner. Another guy that was going to be at this dinner is a guy named Jerry Colangelo. He's the guy that owns the Phoenix Suns, or at least he used to own the Phoenix Suns. Kind of a big deal in Phoenix, like friends with the mayor, that sort of deal. Uh, Jerry Colangelo, Alice Cooper, Glenn Campbell, the country western singer, was supposed to be at that dinner. Um, there was a guy named A.C. Green who used to play basketball for the Suns, and he also had a rap group for some reason, um, and he, he was going to be at that dinner. So it was A.C. Green, uh, Glenn Campbell, Jerry Colangelo, uh, Alice Cooper, and then, you know, Darren and Shannon McWaters. And I felt stupid. I felt stupid telling the hostess, like, oh, we're here to have dinner with Alice Cooper, because that seems so weird, you know? So she goes, well, can you describe who you're having dinner with? And in my head, all I was thinking was like, well, one of the guys is covered with snakes, you know? Um, fortunately, he didn't have any snakes on him when we were at dinner. But I finally, in my awkwardness, I said, we're having dinner with Alice Cooper and Glenn Campbell. And she goes, oh, yeah, they're back in Alice's special room. We'll take you back there, right? So they'd been there the whole time. We walked back there, and I'm sitting at this table with these legends, and I'm just thinking, like, if I can be at this table with all these people, and if all these people are having dinner together, like, who couldn't be sitting at this table, right? Like, who could you put at that table that, that would seem weird, right? Like, Mother Teresa's there? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Of course she is, Right? At this point, it doesn't, like, it's such a weird collection of people that you could literally pull up anybody in a chair and they would all fit. And there is something that happens in the heart of Matthew where he goes, if I'm welcome following Christ, then who, who couldn't be welcome? So he throws this party. I love the fact that there's two invitations, the invitation of God and then the invitation of the invitee to others he knows that are equally broken, that are equally wrecked, and he throws this party. You know, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians that gets sort of misused sometimes. In talking about the Lord's Supper, and talking about the, the ordinance that Jesus established where he has us remember his body and blood in the, in, in the taking of the wine and the bread, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul talks about it, he talks about the ordinances, and then there's a section just after that where he gives kind of a warning. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread uh, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. When I was a kid in the church I grew up in, they'd read that verse before we were having communion and the whole point of it was to make people feel like if you're gonna come to the Lord's table and you're gonna have the cup and the bread, then you need to feel gross about yourself. So just sit there for a while and think about all the bad things you've done. Just kind of stew in it, Right? And as a kid, you know, we'd sit there and we'd be like, well, I don't want to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, so I lied to my mom and I also stole, you know, I cheated on the test and I, you know, you kind of run through this litany and by the time you came to celebrate in remembrance the giving of the Lord's body and blood, you were just like kind of grossed out by your own sin. And that was sort of the way that verse was taught to me, was like, hey, you, you don't come to the table without recognizing what a mess you are. 
But that's only, that's only kind of one piece of what the writer's saying here. Inspired by the Spirit. Look, look at what else he says. He does say, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, what does that mean, discerning the body? See, it isn't just an estimation of how messed up I am. It's not just me reciting all of my wickedness. This idea of discerning the body has, has kind of a triple idea behind it. It's like sort of a three-sided die here. The, the first side is discerning. Coming to the Lord's table requires the discerning of the giving of the body of Christ, right? That we have to be able to discern the body, the gifting of his life for the sins of the lost, there's also in that uh, the meaning which is the discerning of the body with regard to me, that I am broken and that I am sinful and that I am unworthy and that I don't deserve to be at the table. But as I'm recognizing my unworthiness, there's also a corner that's meant to be turned. That I recognize I don't deserve to be at the table of the Lord, that I don't deserve his body and his blood given for me, but there's a corner I turn where I also, not only do I discern my own self and discern the giving of the blood of Christ, but I also, deserve, I also discern the body, which is the community of followers of Jesus, none of whom are worthy to be at the table. When I recognize my own unworthiness, what that also does is it heightens my awareness because I am unworthy and yet I'm invited. Therefore, everyone who is unworthy also has a place at the table. He says, don't come to the table without discerning the body. What's that mean? It means recognizing that none of us deserve to be there, but all of us have been invited. That none of us have earned our spot, but all of us have a seat. That's what it means to discern the body. It's part of what it means to discern the body. He says in verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This whole chapter is written in the context of not coming to the Lord's table just to gorge yourself or to satisfy your own selfish hunger, but to recognize that the table is a place for us to come together. Everybody unworthy and yet everybody welcome. Does that make sense? He says, don't rush. Don't leave people in your dust. Discern your own unworthiness and then revel in the fact that despite the fact that you're not, you don't deserve to be there, you have a seat. So Jesus is reclining at table in Matthew chapter 9 with sinners, with tax collectors. He's reclining at table with those who were despised. And there's an invitation, another invitation. And then what happens is there's a question that's prompted. And here's back to Matthew chapter 9. Here's what happens. It says in verse 10, Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Many uh, tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There, there's something troubling to the Pharisees about the company that Jesus keeps. They're bothered by it, right? The first thing I want you to notice is um, I, I had dinner with bunches of people this last week, right? I had lots of dinners, and you probably don't know any of the people I had dinner with, right? Unless you were one, some of you, I had dinner with some of you this week, right? But if you weren't one of those I had dinner with, you don't have any idea who I had dinner with. How is it that the Pharisees know that he's having dinner with sinners and tax collectors? It's because he's not doing it in secret. He's not meeting with sinners and tax collectors in a clandestine meeting and saying, hey, I can't say this out in the open air, but I actually do like you. Just don't tell anybody I said that, right? I actually don't mind eating with you as long as we have plenty of hand sanitizer, you know? 
Jesus isn't sneaking around to have dinner with sinners. He's not sneaking around to have dinner with outcasts. He's doing it in a purposefully public way. He's doing it in a way that everyone will be able to see. Why? Because everyone has a seat. He wants them to know it's open season for dinner with Jesus. He's not doing it in private. He's not doing it in secret. They see that he's having dinner with tax collectors and sinners, and they go to his disciples. I think it's interesting, too, that they go to his disciples, right? Why don't they just go straight to him? I think in some ways they're hoping, you know, the disciples may be easier to leverage, right? They might be able to sort of get the disciples tangled up and go, man, this is the guy you're choosing to follow? This guy who meets with the the tax collectors and the sinners? Is that sure? You sure that's what you want to do? I think they feel like they might be able to leverage those guys a little bit better. But more than that, the reason I don't think that the the Pharisees ask their question of Jesus is that they know if they ask Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? He'll go, why don't you come and join us? And they don't want to sit at the table. You see, the Pharisees are bothered by this dinner. They're bothered by this community table because their religion, religion for them has become a thing of division. It's become a thing of judgment. It's become a thing of pride. It's become a thing of self-congratulation. Their entire religious system is about puffing themselves up so that they can lord it over other people. There's a weird thing that happens with human beings where we start to think about our faith in terms of who we exclude, right? You talk to people and you go, oh, you're a, you're a Christian. They go, yeah, we don't like these people and we don't like these people and these, you know, we, we have problems with this and we have problems with that. And you start to think of yourselves entirely in terms of who isn't welcome. And that's where the Pharisees had gotten. It's no wonder that in Matthew chapter 23, in the midst of multiple woes that Jesus delivers to the Pharisees, he says to them in Matthew 23, 13, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I wonder if there are places where this sort of defining my faith based on who I exclude has creeped into your discipleship, has creeped into the way you follow Jesus. I, w- I wonder if there are places where you've started to think of yourself in terms of who, who am I not aligned with rather than who can I welcome and who can I love. We want to be followers of Christ who are defined by, by what we are, not what we aren't. And the Pharisees were bothered by this because their entire system was based upon division and exclusion and judgment and pride and self-congratulation. In order for them to come and sit at this table, in order for them to participate in something like this, they'd have to take their masks off. And that's not something the Pharisees are willing to do. They've worked really hard to paint those masks. They've worked really hard to affix those masks in place. They've worked really hard so that people don't look at them and see someone broken or see someone despised or see someone outcast. And they're maintaining that facade in such a perfect way that sitting at a table for outcasts would ruin the image. And they don't want that. So they look at Jesus' disciples in Matthew chapter 9 and they say, why does, your, why does your master do this? And then the coolest thing happens. It's actually, if this has ever happened to you, it's like the worst thing, but it's the coolest thing too. He, he's asking the disciples a question and Jesus overhears. Isn't that the worst? When you're like talking about somebody on this side of the room and the person you're talking about hears it and answers the question still. Ugh, that feels terrible, right? They look at Jesus' disciples and they go, why does your master meet with sinners? And Jesus goes, did I hear somebody ask a question, Right? Let me answer that. Hope you don't mind. Jesus presumably stands up from the table. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe right where he sits, he looks at them, and this is what he says. Matthew chapter 9. He looks at the Pharisees in response to their question in verse 12, and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's perfect. Jesus looks at the, at the Pharisees and he says, you have a question about why I'm sitting with these people? He goes, that, that's easy. He says, it, it's not the healthy people who need a doctor, it's the sick people who need a doctor. And then he says to them, go and learn what this means. And he quotes out of Hosea chapter six, verse six, which by the way, as a Pharisee, you pride yourself, you divide yourself from others on your knowledge of the prophets, right? So he, they, they, if he said to them, go and learn what this means in Hosea six, they'd be like, we know that stuff already. We passed the test, right? He says, go and learn what it means in Hosea when it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What's that passage mean? What's he wanting them to understand? God isn't interested in your religiosity. He's not interested in your rote performance of religious rites and duties. He's not interested in your spiritual mask, no matter how beautifully painted he is. What God is interested in is not all of that routine. What he's interested in is love, because that's who he is. Mercy and love, he looks at them and says, I I don't desire your sacrifice, I want mercy. You need to relearn it. And then he says this, and I hope, I hope I know the way he says it, but he looks at them and says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I hope that when Jesus says, I've come to call sinners to repentance, I hope he locks eyes with the Pharisees and he gestures to open seats at the table. These are for you guys. Tax collector, tax collector, tax collector, prostitute, sinner, disciple, fisherman, knucklehead, 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 knucklehead. Pharisee knuckleheads, we saved you a couple seats. I hope that he looked at them and said, I haven't come to call the righteous. I haven't come to dine with the righteous. I haven't come to dine with the healthy. I've come to dine with the sick. I've come to call the sinners. Because here's the thing, you guys. If Jesus had come to have dinner with the righteous, he couldn't have had dinner with anybody. Because there aren't any. The only way that Jesus can have dinner with anybody is if he has dinner with the sinner. And when he looks at the Pharisees and says, I've come to call the sinners, what he's saying to them is, there is a seat at the table for you guys. But they don't sit down. They don't sit down. Wouldn't that have been a cool story? Wouldn't it have been cooler if they'd taken off their masks and said, wait, wait, like we don't have to posture, we don't have to pretend, we don't have to put on a show, we don't have to recite all the Bible verses we know, we could just admit that sometimes we're selfish and greedy and arrogant and prideful and still have some of this dinner. Yeah, let us have our seats. But like Jesus says in Matthew 23, they not only exclude other people from the kingdom, they refuse to enter themselves. Why? Because they don't want to take off the masks. You see, in order to have a seat at the table, and I think it's interesting, you know, I've wondered in looking at Matthew 9, I've wondered whether or not does Jesus say that thing to the Pharisees in front of all the tax collectors and the sinners, right? Does he stand up in front of that company and say, hey, I didn't come to eat with the healthy. I came to eat with the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. Does he say it in front of them? I think he does. Because here's the thing with sinners. Here's the thing with broken people who are willing to admit they're broken. We don't care if you know. I don't care that you know I'm being audited by the IRS. I got problems, right? I'm not trying to fool you or pretend to be something I'm not because exactly who I am is who God has pulled out the table for, right? The Pharisees don't want to sit at the table because in order for them to sit at a table that is reserved for tax collectors and sinners, they have to admit they're a sinner and they don't want to do it. And so they keep their masks firmly affixed and they walk away. 
they walk away. But Matthew, Matthew gets it. Matthew is doing exactly what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. Famous verse in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says this in Revelation 3. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Joel quoted this to us earlier. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and dine with him. Did you ever think about that verse in terms of food? It's about food. It's about having a meal. Jesus says, I'm knocking and I'm calling. If you hear my voice, you open the door. I will come in and sup with you and you with me. There's a a mutual dinner happening there. And a lot of times that verse gets used in the context of evangelism. You know, we look at people who don't know Christ and we say, hey, you know what? Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. He's knock, knock, knocking. You need to open it up and he'll come in, right? And and that's true in one sense. But in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, that's not a passage about the lost. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 comes in the context of, of the letter to the church at Laodicea, which Jesus has just said is lukewarm. Right? He said, you're lukewarm. And then after that, he says, I'm knocking on the door and I'm calling. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. Listen, what's going on there? The picture that is painted in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 is of Jesus outside the church. Knocking on the door of the church. Right? Banging on the door of the church and going, hey, you've got my name on all your printed materials. Is it possible for me to come in and get some food? Can I have a seat at the table? How did we ever get to a place where Jesus would be outside the doors asking to come in here? It's his room. But what happens is that we start, we start to, to define ourselves by who we exclude and not who we include. I would guess that you, you probably don't care about tax collectors one way or another. But can I ask you this this morning? Who are the people that are unwelcome at your table? Who are the people in our culture today that are not welcome at your table? Who are the people that are not welcome in your businesses? Who are the people in our world today that you don't want in the same schools with your kids? Who are the people in our world today that you despise or that you judge or that you divide yourself from? Because I guarantee you if Jesus was here this morning and he is, that there would be seats at the table for those people. So who's at your table? And are you at the table of Jesus? Those are the two questions this morning. Who's at your table? And are you at the table of Jesus? Because if you're not at the table of Jesus, it's probably because you love your mask too much. When you take that sucker off, there's a place at the table for you. Come and sit. Everybody else at the table is just as screwed up as you are. And there is community to be had in the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus who knows everything about you already anyway. I love the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 9 where David says to his servant, is there anybody left from King Saul's household? You know, anybody, anybody, any of his descendants still around? King Saul was David's enemy. And one of David's servants goes, uh, you know, I think that one of the sons of Jonathan, a guy named Mephibosheth, is still alive. He's uh, crippled in his legs. And David goes, go get him. They go and get Mephibosheth. Crippled in his legs, they bring him in. They set him at the table. Mephibosheth doesn't know what's happening, right? Because he's been an outcast as a grandson of Saul. And David looks at Mephibosheth and says, for the rest of your life, you'll have a seat at my table because of who your father is. It doesn't matter what kind of brokenness you have. It doesn't matter what kind of handicap. It doesn't matter what what kind of sin and wickedness and greed and pride. You have a place at the table of Jesus. You have a place in the community because of who your father is. And you don't have to be embarrassed about your brokenness. It does not prevent you from eating here. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray. I pray that you would um, inject this in our DNA. 
that you would give us a blood transfusion of love and grace and mercy, that there would never be a moment where you were standing outside the doors of our congregation asking to be let in, but that we would always know and hold the truth that you are the master of the table. You send out the invitations, and that when you invite us, you prompt us to extend invitations to those like us. God, I pray that you would move in us to be a loving community, united in sacrifice, and living like Christ for the glory of God. And the only way that will happen is if we are empowered by your spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.